0: Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life, and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. And welcome to this next episode of Get a Grip podcast series with me, Dr. Kathy Weston. Uh, this week's guest is Professor Cathy Cresswell, who's a Professor of Developmental Clinical Psychology. And she was based at the School of Psychology and Clinical Language Sciences at the University of Reading. Uh, but I know understand, Cathy, you've recently moved to Oxford.
1: Um, can you tell us a little bit about your new position? Yes, that's right. So uh, just a few weeks ago, I moved to the University of Oxford, where I have a joint uh, position across both uh, the Departments of Experimental Psychology and the Department of Psychiatry. So I'll be carrying on my research there um, on child anxiety disorders and children's mental health more generally, bringing together the sort of links I'll have both in experimental psychology to help us really focus on mechanisms underpinning anxiety and working alongside colleagues who do a lot of work both in those areas and treatment and application of treatments in the psychiatry department so it's a really exciting link
0: brilliant and obviously we'll be talking so much in this podcast about the relationship between anxiety and other mental health issues so that's very interesting currently we know i believe reading your book that there's a prevalence of say 6.5 percent of children have anxiety disorders in the uk is that correct
1: well, so, I mean, estimates do vary somewhat depending on where you look. And certainly, I think some of the figures that we've, We often use are based on a really good synthesis of data that was collected from around the world, which estimated that generally about six and a half percent of children meet criteria for an anxiety disorder. But estimates do vary, and actually our most recent figures from England are quite consistent with that, uh, although they do, do vary by age. And what those suggested was that overall, they in a national survey of children and young people across England, about 7% of children met criteria for an anxiety disorder. So it, it's certainly hovering around the 6 or 7% mark in studies both here and internationally.
0: And has that increased significantly over recent years, as the media say would would have us believe?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And actually, it's only recently that we've had the data to be able to look at that because typically we haven't had studies that have used comparable methods where we can look at different points in time. And what the recent survey of mental health of children in England, and you know, this was specific to England, just to highlight, did suggest is that there There does seem to have been an increase uh, in anxiety disorders reported where there was the most striking prevalence of anxiety disorders. It was really amongst 17 to 19 year olds. However, the previous survey that was conducted didn't include that age group. So we're not able to say whether that's uh, a change or not. But actually, in that age group, 13 percent of young people met criteria for an anxiety disorder, which is obviously extremely high and, and very concerning.
0: Now I saw that data yes about the 17 to 19 year olds but equally it looked as well that it seemed to be anxiety seemed to be more prevalent in girls is that accurate?
1: yeah that's the pattern that we typically see so um that's right in that study particularly well we saw higher rates in girls both in the 11 to 16 year olds and the 17 to 19 year olds but that was particularly the case amongst the 17 to 19 year olds where actually over 20% of the girls who took part in that survey met criteria for anxiety disorder which is obviously extremely high Um, And that tends to fit with our experience within the clinic, where in the primary school age children, we actually don't see that much of a difference in terms of the numbers of boys and girls coming through. But as we move into the adolescent years, we tend to see a lot more girls than boys coming through for treatment of anxiety disorders.
0: And obviously, the first question every parent or teacher listening to this will be why? Why are we seeing those rates, particularly in girls? And I think people ask me this question all the time as well, as I'm sure they do with you, you know, what's? going on with our girls. I um, am asked this question and people often ask me about social media use of smartphones but but when you actually look at the data as I was doing last week about children's worries things they're worried about even in those older age groups it's often either about family life it's not generally about you know bigger issues it's more about family life first, first of all but secondly they worry about things like their looks girls seem to worry a lot about their physical appearance is that your um, findings
1: well so i mean the reason why things have changed is something that we really don't have a clear understanding of at the moment i mean obviously you know the change at the moment seems so rapid but it's not something that we've been able to really understand and keep up with in terms of research i think you're right that a lot of emphasis gets placed on social media and obviously we that's something that needs to be carefully looked at. But certainly from studies with young people, they often sort of reflect on the fact that while social media introduces some challenges into young people's lives, many young people also report that it it brings a lot of positives into their life as well. So we certainly need quite a balanced look at whether and how social media may have a role in these things. I mean, obviously, there have been a lot of other changes that have gone on over the last 10, 20 years, which, you know, also need to be taken into account. There have been significant changes in the educational system, which obviously all young people are immersed in. There have been changes in terms of sort of demographic characteristics of um, in terms of income and, poverty and these kind of things, which obviously can't be ignored. So there's a, a whole wealth of factors. And at the moment, we really can't say that any one thing is caused is this rise. Uh, but there are certainly a lot of areas that need to be taken into account. And I think we, we definitely want to avoid like as you said all the blame being put on for example social media and and as such us ignoring other potentially critical areas absolutely and as you say the research is clear that social media can be of
0: enormous benefit to teens who are struggling say with their sexual identity or looking for you know help with we know it gives them a sense of belonging often so so it can be beneficial for well-being as well so we have to have a sort of a balanced view on that don't we and um, the other thing is I've noticed we've been talking in the past few years nationally about the need to talk about mental health. But it's as far as I'm concerned, it's all we talk about. Every day in the papers, there'll be a celebrity talking about their battles with anxiety and depression. You know, it seems I don't think that that seems to be an issue anymore. But I think that the uh, celebrity culture of talking about their mental health has certainly perhaps had encouraged young people or even adults to, to own up and say they were struggling. Do you think that's had any impact on this sort of confession that people are having um, struggles
1: well, it's a really interesting question, and I think it's certainly a positive thing that we see a lot more people being open about their mental health and I think gradually we are seeing you know seeing a change in relation to stigma associated with mental health problems, including anxiety disorders. Whether that relates to the increase in prevalence that we see, I think is unclear, but I think the the study that uh, we talked about, the mental health survey of children and young people in England, actually is a really robust. So, so some surveys are done where you kind of you know, give people self-report questionnaires to fill in, and they can be very open to bias, and they can be very influenced by um, awareness, for example. But the particular survey that we were just referring to was used very robust methods, which in involved doing very systematic assessments uh, with children and parents um, asking about specific symptoms and experiences rather than just asking people for example do you think it's anxiety and so and so and they use exactly the same methods as we used uh, previously so whilst there may have been some impacts of increased awareness increased openness I think it's unlikely that that accounts for for all the findings there. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. And in terms of the causes of anxiety, again,
0: we do know, I think, um, from your research and other people's research that there, there are family, maybe genetic factors that play a role in anxiety. Can you tell us a little bit more, more about that?
1: I think the main thing that we know about the causes of anxiety is that that there's not one single cause and that the, the, the different things that cause anxiety interact in quite complicated ways. So it certainly does seem to be the case from a number of studies that there is a genetic contribution to the development of anxiety. We know that anxiety can often run in families. So if you have a parent with an anxiety disorder, you are at greater risk of an anxiety disorder, and that seems to be partly accounted for by genetics. In very simple terms, it's been suggested that about a third of what accounts for what makes somebody um, anxious might be accounted for genetics, but about two-thirds is down to environmental influences. And I think what, what some of our research has really highlighted is how critical those interactions between our our genetic or biological vulnerabilities and our environment are. So what we've shown in a couple of different studies is that actually when we look at parental responses to, to children with anxiety, what we tend to find is that whereas certain parental responses will have make very little difference to whether a child is more or less anxious if you have a very laid back child. But if you have a very sort of high trait anxiety child, a child who's more nervous and resistant to new things, uh, a bit more cautious, those children seem to be much more tuned in to their environment and so much more likely to learn from experiences they have, which may include responses of parents. But it's a really tricky situation for parents because those sorts of things that children are responding to are exactly the sort of responses that actually most of us would do if we had to look after a a child who has problems with anxiety so um, for example in one study from some colleagues in Australia um, Jenny Hudson and others at Macquarie University they paired up parents with other people's children some of whom had problems with anxiety and some of whom didn't and what you see there is that if you're a parent and you're paired up with a child who has problems with anxiety you pick that up and you're more likely to want to, to protect them and help them out. So you're going to be more likely to express concern, you might be more likely to step in early to prevent them from becoming distressed. And it's exactly those sort of things that we've seen that children who are inclined to anxiety tend to be on the lookout for and seem to be learning from in ways that may then kind of keep the anxiety going. So I think in terms of the sort of parental responses and family factors it's this very complex web where actually the 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 genetics and the child's temperament can actually encourage people to respond in particular ways but then those those children are particularly tuned into those responses and influenced by them in ways that other children may not be. So
0: interesting and you know what this is this is at the heart isn't it about how parents often do what is comes so intuitively you know perhaps over reassuring and comforting children when actually what your book has taught me and other other parents is that the way in which we respond to an anxious child the way our face responds the way our body responds the things that we say can have a huge impact and that's what's so exciting about uh you know your your books that encourage parents to think carefully about how they parent an anxious child
1: and that's right well, i mean our, our aim really is to try and is to empower parents to be able to help their children because what we really recognize is that having an anxious child is very, very difficult. And having an anxious child leads you uh, inevitably to respond in a number of ways in an attempt to be helpful. And some of times, inadvertently, those things may end up keeping the problem going. and And that's a very kind of natural situation that we can all very easily get into. And so all the way through the work that we do with parents, it's really coming from that perspective that actually that there is actually nothing wrong with how people are parenting, but because their child is prone to anxiety, they're on the lookout for very particular messages and are using those to to learn about the world. Um, and so actually, you know, you could be parenting in exactly the same way with another child and you know it would be it'd be fantastic and great and it may help them achieve everything they want to achieve. And so it's really about recognising how how very difficult it can be to know exactly what to do and to support a child with anxiety, and then trying to empower parents to help them to be able to help their children. And obviously, you know, your
0: research clinic, um, the anxiety clinic for children who are anxious in Reading, that, you know, you, you were inundated, weren't you, with clients? You never had any shortage of families.
1: Certainly <laughs> not. No, that's right. And yeah, we, uh, yes, it, it, it's, 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 Always very hard to manage the waiting list for a clinic like that because the whole point of that clinic is to to see families very quickly so that when they become concerned about their children and when they want help, they can get it fast. And our biggest challenge there is always being able to help people to get, you know, to be able to support people quickly because that's right, the numbers coming through are always very steady and large because the, as we know these problems are just so common
0: but happily you've published uh, a book which I've recommended to all parents who come to my talks the first edition can you tell us a little bit about the first edition of overcoming you know and helping your child with fears and worries
1: so myself and my colleague Lucy Willits wrote the book overcoming your child's fears and worries about or oh, I can't think the exact date I think it was about 2007 and uh, we we had worked together for some time. So Lucy um, is a very experienced consultant clinical psychologist who at that time was working in the NHS and now runs a private practice. And I was working alongside her in a clinical research role so together we were doing various projects working with families with um, children with anxiety disorder and what we were both very struck by was the need to be able to provide treatment really efficiently so that families could get help as soon as they needed it and for it to be done as quickly as possible because you know that's what what families wanted and needed so the reason that we wrote this book was so that you know we could get that information out to families just at as early a stage as we possibly could so we did that as part of the Overcoming series which was published by Constable Robertson who've now become part of Little Brown and so just recently we've updated the book so it did take us a little while to do so and it's now part of a new series of books which all are called Helping Your Child With and I know you've spoken to Rachel Hiller recently about their book on sleep, sleep problems That's
0: right and funnily enough there's so many overlaps between her area of sleep problems in school age children and your book because she talks as well well, recently when i interviewed her about children who worry a lot at night and how that needs to be carefully managed and how these anxieties and fears can disrupt uh sleeping patterns you know quite extensively sometimes
1: yes absolutely
0: and uh... For for those of us who have both books, can I just be clear on the differences? Like what was it that you have inserted into the second edition that perhaps we that is an update, say, on the research or something quite interesting for, for, for people like me who know the books quite well?
1: Yeah, so there are a few things that change that have changed that feel very important to us, but it will be interesting to see whether people, other people reading the books feel it's made that much difference. And they've been informed by developments in the research. I mean, the book itself is written for parents, and we know that most parents are extremely busy, don't have a lot of time, and really need to cut to the chase. So it's not... Uh, You know, we haven't referred specifically to research studies and so on with it. We've just tried to translate that into what parents can be doing. So we haven't talked about research studies specifically, but that has reformed what we're doing. There's, There's a few things that have changed. So particularly, and, and some of this is based on the research, as I said, some, and some of it is based on feedback that we've got from parents about the book, about the things that they, they found work well, the things that they found more difficult. And some of it's also from, you know, so for example, on online bookshops. We've basically got some, you know, fantastic reviews, which is great. But there are one or two that are less fantastic, and actually, those have been ha- those were helpful for us also to think about. Okay, how might we want to change things in the next book? So particular things that have changed are we've put more focus on setting goals and helping parents to think about setting goals to to drive their work, just to he- work with their children to help them think about what they're going to focus on. And the other th- another thing that's really changed is that we've put a lot more focus on helping parents to think about what their child needs to learn. So the previous book followed a very typical cognitive behaviour therapy for child anxiety disorders approach, where we would be encouraging parents to help their children identify negative thoughts and then go through a process of kind of analysing those thoughts and thinking about evidence for and against them and generating alternative thoughts which might help them to face their fears. But actually, we've stripped that stuff right back Partly because many parents found it quite difficult to do and, and let us know that. But also because over the last few years, increasingly research has come out, which has suggested that for children to really benefit from facing their fears, actually coming up with helpful thoughts beforehand may not be the best approach. And there have been studies with adults that suggest that actually coming up with those kind of helpful thoughts before you go into what's called an exposure exercise might mean that the the longer term learning that you get is less useful. And we've recently had a student, so myself and my colleague, Polly Waite, had a PhD student, Hannah Rogers, who'd done some experimental work, which has shown similar effects in adolescence. So essentially, what she did in this study was had young people do um, who were nervous about performance situations they had to give a speech to a well it was actually a filmed classroom of of children but it felt very realistic when people did it and they either just had to give the talk or they gave the talk after having generated helpful thoughts or they gave the talk but beforehand just literally said said what they were worried about and what they thought was going to happen and what we found was in the short term it looked like the helpful thoughts were quite useful in terms of how anxious young people felt when they then give the presentation but when they got we got them back a few days later to give a presentation again the kids who'd come up with helpful thoughts actually had the least learning and were most anxious about giving the talk at that point in time. And what it suggested was that actually, instead, being clear about that they were feeling scared and what they thought was and the negative thing they thought were going to happen was associated with better outcomes when they then came to give a speech a few days later. And this fits with recent adult research that, sh- that suggests that when you face your fears, it's really important that they, you get an opportunity to disconfirm your beliefs rather than just to kind of you know, a sort of fudge your way through it. And so we've, so we've changed things in our book to reflect that, that different research. So the focus is much more on helping parents to work with their children to think about, right, what does my child need to learn and how can we create the opportunities for them to go out and learn it? And that's very much, you know, in
0: the, the spirit of nudging children through dis, uh, uncomfortable but necessary experiences to learn that they can do it. Is that correct?
1: That's right. But through learning it, that's right through
0: Through doing. Through doing, by actually doing it. And for a parent, it is so hard, isn't it, to watch a child in that state of discomfort. But actually, what I really enjoy about your book is that, you know, we talk about, you talk about goals and targets and little rewards and little steps. So it doesn't need to feel overwhelming. Parents can guide them. You know, if they feel anxious, say, going to the ballet class on a Saturday morning, you know, your book suggests you, you set little targets, little goals. And also have a little reward on the other side of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, so I mean, in the adult studies, they have suggested that actually a, a gradual, step by step approach may not be, or you know, the most effective way to do it. Actually, it might be most effective to overcome fears, you know, by getting a bit more surprise and not doing things in such a gradual way. But actually, we found if we're working with parents and children, we need to be strategic about this too. And. This what's actually going to be doable and it's quite different if you're working with an adult with an anxiety disorder who has come asking for treatment uh, and wants to do that and is prepared to put themselves in a difficult position to do that but actually obviously children are often not coming saying this is what they want to do but you know they are frequently getting distressed about things so we need to think about well, what's going to work what's doable for parents so our, our approach is very much guided by that and from what parents have told us works Um, And actually, and so we take a gradual approach, and we make sure that parents are thinking about how to encourage and motivate their children to have a go at things that they might not otherwise want to do in order to help them overcome their fears. And another thing that we've changed in the book is we've added a lot more information for parents about what to do when it's difficult, because that's something that we realised was really missing in the previous book, where we just kind of said, right, this is what you do. But we didn't really talk about, well, actually, what happens if My child gets upset or what happens if my child refuses or, you know, these all these normal things that that do happen. So um, we've we've hopefully given parents a lot more information about how to manage the, the challenges that come along the way.
0: The other thing that really struck me in the older edition, but also this book, is that, you know, this this concept of, again, counterintuitive for many parents, where we want to step in and soothe our children when actually we should be coaching them. And, you know, I know a lot about the coaching world and there is so much Uh, from the coaching world that is necessary necessary skills in order to have that positive interaction with an anxious child it's so much more beneficial isn't it to come uh, to come from it from that perspective
1: yeah I mean I think it's it's very much about getting a balance isn't it because ultimately you know to overcome anxiety children need to be Doing different, doing different things to give them a chance to, to test out their thoughts and discover different ways of thinking about the world. But at the same time, they need to be understood and they need to feel that uh, others empathize with them. So it's it's all about getting a balance between showing the child that, you know, that you understand how they feel and you understand how they're thinking but then taking quite a proactive approach to do something about it. Because I think children, in order to be able to put themselves out there and have a go at doing things a bit differently, they need to feel that others understand and empathise and and are are open to listening and understanding and genuinely want to understand where they're coming from.
0: So take the example which all of us are familiar with as parents. Mummy, there's a monster under the bed you know that's a or you know initially a parent would say oh don't be silly there's no monster under the bed but I think what I've learned from your work is that well sometimes you have to say okay so you think there's a, a monster under the bed let's look for the evidence that there is a monster you know you sort of take the child's fear seriously and talking about the fear will not sort of exaggerate or amplify it is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's very, exactly. I mean, many children who have problems with anxiety, Well, I think this is true probably across the age range, you know, will be reluctant to share because well, sometimes, you know, it's hard for them to exactly pinpoint what they are or to articulate them. But also they con- they are concerned that other people will think that they're stupid or silly or that there's something wrong with them. So the number one step obviously always has to be you know, showing understanding of that thought and recognising how anxiety provoking it must be and thinking about, you know, what's going to help this child to continue to open up about what they feel worried about. So absolutely, if a child says they're worried about a monster under the bed, I think our first response, would we would want that to be, that sounds really frightening. I can see why you're feeling scared about that. But that doesn't mean we then just accept it. Yeah. But yeah, in- um, we then think about, right, well, how can we find out if there really is? And one of the things, you know, that has shifted in the book a bit is previously we would have talked about that a bit more. Whereas now it's much more about moving straight to, well, how can we find out? How can we find out if there is a monster under bed? What do we need to do to find that out? And, and crucially,
0: it's really the child that has to come to the realization that there isn't the monster under the bed. Telling them there isn't just doesn't work, does it?
1: Well, for for some children, it might. And I think if this comes back to this, you know, as we were talking about earlier on about the kind of interaction between what the child brings and their temperament and how they respond to others. And actually, for some children, many children, um, a bit of reassurance goes a long way. And actually, that's all they need. And then they can move on. But if children are having difficulties with anxiety, it's likely that parents have already tried reassurance and it, and it hasn't moved on. And uh, instead, we need to help them to make these discoveries for themselves.
0: So one size definitely doesn't fit all, even if you have multiple children. For one child, that might work. Another child, we just have to think a little bit harder. I think it's terribly useful as well in the book that you know this reference to helping children rate how they're how anxious they're feeling. You know, like a little thermometer I've seen in in the book, a sort of a you know a scale. You know, how anxious are you feeling? Like you can also like you can sort of move the volume control up and down. So asking children, how do you feel on a scale of not to ten? If ten is very very scared. It's amazing, isn't it, how easily children can evaluate how they're feeling when they're given a scale like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And the the where we and actually we, we probably use that a bit less in this book than than previously because we we don't tend to use that, for example, within the exposure. But we where we would use that is to help think about what's going to be manageable for this child. So as we said, you know, we have to think strategically. We have to think about what this child's going to be able to do at any one point in time and so it may be that going straight in there with the most difficult terrifying thing is you know it's not going to get us anywhere so using these kind of ratings can be really helpful to get a sense of right okay well what what should we take on first um and how can we test this out in a way that's going to feel manageable for the child so that can be really useful and also it can be useful for reflecting back afterwards you know well you know in terms of how was it in terms of of how they thought it was going to be uh, because what they discover is actually it wasn't as scary as they thought. But that's not the be all and end all because ultimately it's about learning something new. For some children, what they're, it might be what they're scared about is they're just going to get really scared and that's going to be really horrible. So actually it might be then that they learn, okay, it wasn't actually that bad. For others, it might be that they discover, yes, something did go wrong and it was quite scary, but actually, you know, in the end, nothing terrible happened beyond that you know so it's always about thinking what does the child need to learn from this situation but those kind of ratings can be quite helpful in in thinking strategically about what we do you know what we do first, what we do next, and you know, so on.
0: When you're talking, uh, th- describing children, you know, finding out things weren't quite as bad as they originally thought. It's a little. I have an image in my mind of children opening these doors. You know, they have no idea what's behind the door, but they have to open the door <laughs> to. You know, it could be scary opening doors, even even as an adult when you don't know what's on the other side. But this is where the relationship between anxiety and resilience um, is very interesting, isn't it? Because I always advocate to parents that children need as many diverse and new experiences as we can pack into family life so that they experience themselves differently and, ex- and understand how competent they actually are. And I think it builds general resilience to give children that sort of access to a range of interesting experiences that where they can feel the anxiety and And still and managed to overcome it.
1: Yes, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And certainly, there's been a really nice line of research by colleagues in Amsterdam, led by Susan Bogles, which has looked particularly at, they they were particularly interested in the role of fathers in relation to child anxiety. And they ended up doing a lot of work looking at challenging play between parents and children and this is the kind of play where actually it's a bit risky you know the sort of throwing children in the air and you know when they're young and the rough and tumble and this kind of this kind of play and really what what the suggestion was here is that actually there's a really critical role for those kind of experiences where children do get to feel a bit nervous but it's fun and they do get uh, all those kind of physical symptoms of fear, but also excitement. And they get to learn that those things, you know, that they can tolerate those things. And that, yeah, the experiences that are sometimes a little bit scary can also be fun and exciting and lead to to positive outcomes. So I think that that general approach is very consistent, that um, that children need those sorts of, you know, a broad range of experiences from an early age to, you know, and have that experience of a wide range of emotions.
0: And also we know that fathers tend to be a little bit more up for throwing them in the air, letting them, you know, they seem to be much more open to giving children um, access to those sorts of activities, whereas I'm afraid... Sometimes we mothers seem to be a bit more uh, reticent to allow our children to climb to right to the top, top, top of the climbing frame, for example, and are constantly churning out messages of, oh, don't hurt yourself. Be careful. You know, that's certainly not something my husband says. He'll say, go on, up you go, see if you can get as high as you can to the very, very top. So it seems to be that's happening a bit more and, and we have to learn to allow them to take those physical risks.
1: Well, it's interesting because those, uh, I mean, the, the studies from um, Susan Bogles and her group, I think what they've really suggested is that there are there are different roles that we have as parents. So there is a, a role there for sort of promoting a reasonable level of uh, risk taking. But then there are other roles that we have as well, you know, which obviously we, we can't ignore. So it's the nurturing side and the protection side is obviously a critical part of the job. And so I think you're right that often you'll find in in a partnership, then the parents might naturally fall into those sort of two different roles and um, but what we, we you know we really have no idea at all about about the different ways in which this could work and and what we would assume is that children need access to both you know all of those different things in their lives, but we're not you know I'm not sure it matters who that comes from so it might be that it all comes from one person and obviously you know single parents can parent extremely successfully and it may be that they're able to provide those things or it may be that there are other people in children's lives around them who can provide those things it might be that sometimes the mum and dad kind of switch roles in those ways or and obviously same sex parents you know there's no reason to think any of these things are to do with gender but i suppose it what it does is really highlight that the, the the many different roles that we potentially have as parents, all of which are going to be important for children, you know, having opportunities to build their their resilience. And also the, the more diverse
0: and interesting family relationships children can have access to, the better. So sometimes they might go to the park with their uncle who plays and interacts with them in a different way, or they might go with grandma. And all of that is good for children, isn't it? That experience of being, of, of
1: people's differential responses to them I'm, I'm sure that's right i mean to, to be honest i'm not aware of any research on on that so i can't say anything at all from a sort of evidence-based yeah, perspective yeah but
0: yeah that,
1: that would fit with the uh, you know that that seems a sensible suggestion
0: now back to um when i you know all of our children experience anxiety from time to time but when it crosses the line can you talk a little bit about when anxiety becomes a sort of a, an
1: issue that requires a clinical intervention yeah so i mean obviously you're absolutely right so anxiety and, and fears and worries and things everybody experiences at times they're normal emotions they're healthy emotions um, and actually some people might benefit from some level of anxiety and in, in some circumstances but and so we obviously need to be careful about not pathologizing normal healthy emotions so yes when does it become something that might benefit from intervention the The answer that we would generally give to this is really about it's about when it starts interfering in somebody's life in, interfering in someone's day-to-day life and so we would start to consider something as an anxiety disorder if it's interfering for example with a child's ability to fully engage in in school life is it interfering with attendance getting in on time is it interfering with their ability to participate in the classroom is it in, is it interfering with their ability to their relationships with friends um, also is it interfering with life at home so is it causing a great deal of distress? For, for children is it meaning parents are having to completely um you know change everything around uh, in order to accommodate particular difficulties which in ways which are holding parents back in other ways you know is it causing other impacts on siblings and so on and so we'd be particularly looking at how whether anxiety is causing that kind of level of interference and if it's not causing any interference then you know then it's unlikely that Anything will be achieved from intervention. So, for
0: example, if a child is a big worrier, as parents will often say to me, my child's a worrier, if that's not stopping them going to Cubs or, you know, joining in activities, going to school, do you think then the parent may not say benefit from, from a book like yours? Should they just, if things are going okay,
1: is it okay to leave well alone? Yeah, so I think I suppose there's two different things is whether they benefit from a clinical intervention, uh, you know, versus more of a kind of book for parents with some guidance in it. I mean, I think that the feedback that we've had on our book from many parents is that actually a lot of it is quite sort of just general, useful advice, whether your child has a difficulty or not. And certainly some, you know, would hopefully give some ideas about if your child is worrying a lot, how you could talk about it with them and, you know, different ways of helping them to to resolve those kind of worries that they have to prevent them becoming a problem down the line. So I certainly wouldn't uh, discourage parents from reading more information uh, so that they feel well armed in those situations where their child's worrying. In terms of clinical intervention, I mean, as we know, it's not easy to access these days. And so it's very unlikely that children and young people would be able to access a, a, a clinical intervention unless there was some significant interference. And, you know, I know many families worry about, you know, their child being made to feel they have a problem and and these sorts of things. So I think that if there isn't any, any interference being caused, then, you know, No need to feel the need to go down that road. But, you know, obviously, I I always think reading information, getting ideas about how to manage things that may become a problem later on is, is never a bad thing to do. And,
0: you know, anxiety isn't always the enemy, is it? You know, we need, I say to my children, you know, use the metaphor of the engine needs to rev a little bit and then it can go, for example, when they're sitting to do an exam or they're they're doing a race on sports day. So sometimes anxiety or the way in which we talk about anxiety, it really matters, doesn't it? It's not always the enemy
1: yeah absolutely, and yeah, that's right. If you didn't have any anxiety at all, then you know when you you, you know you're talking about exams there, then you really wouldn't bother would you? why would you why would you bother to do any preparation for them and uh, and so on So you know sometimes you're right. it gives you some motivation or it prevents you from rushing into situations that might be might actually be difficult or dangerous. but you know so here our focus is really on when anxiety is going beyond that's right.
0: And when it becomes, as I describe it, a weed, you know, because sometimes if you don't pick out little weeds, they can grow, can't they? And really interfere with growth. I just wanted to say about that issue of what anxiety can turn into. If anxiety of the level that you've described where it's interfering significantly in a child, if it is sort of left to its own devices, if they, don't rec- if they don't receive adequate or effective help
1: at the right time, what can happen well, I think it's, it is really important to say that whilst anxiety disorders are often chronic, they're not always chronic. So actually, you know, many children will have difficulty with anxiety at one point in time, which may pass with time. And so the children that, that we work with would typically be children where it is causing interference in their daily life and it, and it's it's stuck around for some time and it's, you know, it's continued to be a problem over a couple of months um, and doesn't seem to be resolving by itself. So I think it is important to highlight that, that it's not always chronic. Uh, these difficulties can sometimes pass and I think, you know, and obviously people around the child can be can be helping in that. Where there are chronic difficulties with anxiety then we do know that, that it is associated with risks for other problems going late, later on, so particularly ongoing and different anxiety disorders. But there's also some evidence to suggest that childhood anxiety disorders, so their chronic interfering anxiety, is, also does create a greater risk for depression and also for alcohol and substance abuse problems in later life you know, the key thing to emphasise is that this is talking about risks. So it's, you know, it's about a relative thing. So relative to children who haven't had these problems, these children are at an increased risk. But it's a a long way from saying any of these things are a a done deal. And I think that's really important to emphasise.
0: And absolutely, it's all about, as you mentioned in your book, early intervention and dealing with things. The onset of anxiety seems to be quite young, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So anxiety disorders uh, have probably the youngest age of onset of you know the the common mental health problems and so we know that of all the people who get anxiety disorder, have, will have an anxiety at some point in their life studies have suggested that the median age of onset is about 12 so that means that Half of all the people who will have an anxiety in their life will first have had those problems before the age of 12 years. So that really, you know, highlights to me how critical it is that we are identifying these problems early in children, but also effectively so that we're not, you know, as you say, creating you know, extra work for families of children who are getting on absolutely fine. But we need good ways of identifying children who are having these difficulties or who are prone to them. And uh, and good ways of interven- intervening quickly and early. Now
0: we've got some questions that were submitted from parents and teachers, so I hope you don't mind me uh, reeling through them, Kathy. Uh, so in no particular order, this parent wants to know how you encourage children to, who may be anxious, but who, who refuse to open up. So they ref- the, the parent knows they're worried, say, about this particular impending divorce and parental you know, separation, but the child will not open up and will refuse to go and see a you know, psychologist, say, like yourself. What is your advice to a parent in that regard?
1: Yeah, it's, it's always a tricky one. And it is something that, you know, we talk to parents about, it comes up as a concern quite a lot. And I mean, obviously, this will vary a lot, depending on the age of the child or the young person. But I think sometimes people do have an expectation that um, psychologists or therapists have some kind of magic <laughs> to, um, able to, yeah. you know, sort of get things out of children. Yeah. Um, Actually, if you think about it, you know, this is a complete stranger. And and sometimes there can be a benefit of that in that, you know, it provides a safe space and that where children might be able to express things. I think the main thing is that we probably ask slightly different questions in slightly different ways from what would normally be asked in, you know, normally normal kind of family life rather than there being any kind of very, very special magic. So. In our book, we talk a lot about how to talk to children about worries and particularly emphasizing asking open questions, being very and genuinely curious and empathic and understanding in our responses. So that to even though it won't be a magic wand that gets people, children talking straight away, it gives a very clear message. That we're, that we're listening and that we want to understand. So that's the first thing. But the, the second thing to say is in relation to, to fears and, and worries in the sort of anxiety disorders context, the the approach that we take, is very much about, you know, well, what, what does a child need to learn? And sometimes we can still do that, even if they're not clearly articulating exactly what they're worried about, because actually what we need to remember is they may not always no. yeah exactly. yeah that's very interesting um, or may not be able to describe it but we might still be able to think about right well well what do we think they need need to learn about this uh, and how can we create the opportunity for them to learn that thing so they may not need to
0: open up or even know what they want to talk about the key thing is you're being very very specific and asking what does this child need to learn to move past this question from a teacher Uh, she wants to know about how you can screen children for anxiety disorders on entry to secondary school and if such tools exist
1: that's a really good question so um, there are lots of tools that we found are used in schools for screening children but when it comes to anxiety disorders at the moment we're not really quite there with with the best tools possible so the tools that are there that are specifically focused on anxiety were not developed as screening tools so they're often very long they might include about 40 items which is very long to to give out to sort of every child in a school particularly if you want to also ask parents and particularly if you also want to ask teachers so they're not really ideal for that setup there are other measures like the strength and difficulties questionnaires that are used a lot and have been well validated but don't specifically identify children with anxiety disorders and weren't set up to do so so they're more focused on emotional disorders so that's actually something we're very interested in and we're doing some work on at the moment so with my colleague Tessa Reardon and an Australian colleague Sue Spence we've been looking at how we can shorten a very commonly used measure of child anxiety and actually we found that there are out of the sort of 40 or so items in the standard measure there are eight of them that we can pick out and get just as good results in terms of identifying the children who have problems um, however even with that we still We'll miss a lot of the children who do have problems and we will still identify a bunch of children who don't actually end up having anxiety problems. So we've got a long way to go with this, but this is an ongoing work for us that we're going to be continuing to look at by to improve those measures. So I'm very much hoping that in not you know, not too far from now, we'll have some measures that are suitable for that. And a lot of our work involves working very closely with both schools and parents. To, to make sure that the measures are administered in ways that are going to be acceptable and useful. So if um particular schools and parents are interested in that, you know, I'd really encourage them to get in touch because that is very much a work in progress for us. Brilliant. I mean, is it would it not be beneficial, um, not that I know anything about ass-
0: assessment tools, but to to assess if parents think there's a problem on entry to secondary school. So often parents will be very um intuitive and knowledgeable about their children in terms of how their feeling and they could flag up that their child has had an anxiety disorder or they think there's a problem would that not be more beneficial screening the parents if you like
1: well the work that we've done so far has actually been focused on key stage two so before they get to secondary school and that's actually come about because many of the schools and parents that we've worked with have said actually we would much rather pick up these problems early, early yeah, and yeah. deal with them before they get to secondary school than deal with it kind of as they're arriving so we've we've tended to focus on that age group in our study so far although we have some ongoing work with adolescents to look at this further but in our work with key stage two children we what we found is exactly fits with what you said which is that we found that in terms of distinguishing children with and without anxiety disorders the parent report has been most helpful actually followed by teacher report And then and then followed by the child report, which, you know, maybe is unsurprising given that these are kind of self-report questionnaires that uh, and you know that might present a number of challenges for children of that age to complete. But that's we've absolutely we found that across a few studies that the parent report is really critical for that age group. And just to reiterate, if a school's
0: listening, a head teacher of a primary school and they're very interested in this issue of early identification, they can contact you.
1: Yes. And we'd love them too because we've got a number of studies that are about to start where we'll be really pushing this forward. Lovely. Wonderful. Next question. Is mindfulness proven to work? So
0: this is from a secondary school teacher. Again, uh, I think there's a big um, <laughs> there's a lot of national interest in mindfulness, but I wasn't actually sure when I got that question. I've, I've read to the contrary that actually the evidence isn't there. So it'd be lovely to get your view.
1: Yeah, so it's a really interesting and very timely question. So there was a very recent uh, meta-analysis published in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. So a meta-analysis is, as I'm sure you'll know, is where you pull together the data from a broad range of Of smaller studies so that you then have much larger combined sample to be able to to look at questions about effectiveness of treatment and other other similar sorts of questions and there was a in the recent paper which was led by um dunning and colleagues they looked at the effects of mindfulness-based interventions with children and young people across a number of outcomes and they did find reasonably reasonable effects for mindfulness interventions on children's mindfulness abilities which is encouraging that you know the the programs are doing what they set out to do and they also found good effects in terms of depression outcomes in children and young people they did find significant effects on anxiety and stress but actually when you look at the size of those effects they were actually pretty small and so um just to give you a flavor of it the the effects they found for depression was a effect size of 0.48 whereas for anxiety and stress it was just 0.16 which which really is quite a small effect so these studies combined do suggest that some of these mindfulness interventions really do look promising for depression. But I think, you know, it's very early days to be thinking about the application of these for anxiety disorders specifically, because, you know, the effects there are really quite small and smaller than we would hope to see from interventions for anxiety, particularly where we know that we have other very effective interventions. You know, we've obviously talked about cognitive behavioural approaches for, for anxiety disorders specifically. So um, it's interesting, because obviously, there is a big push on mindfulness at the moment, and many schools are, are very keen on it. And certainly, you know, the evidence to support it in relation to depression looks very promising. But the, it's certainly early days to make those conclusions about anxiety. And I think, but, but one thing to flag is that there is a, a very large study that's going on at the moment, which is run out of the University of Oxford called the Myriad Trial, which I think is really going to give us a lot of very, very useful information about the effectiveness of mindfulness as delivered in schools. So they're doing a very large study where they're randomizing schools to receive mindfulness or, or usual, you know, tr- teaching as usual. And uh, the run a fantastic trial, which is very robust in which teachers have been trained very thoroughly and supported very well in delivering mindfulness in schools. They've done very careful assessments at a number of, of time points. And I think it's going to give us some yeah really, really useful information. About- so a little bit of wait and
0: see on the mindfulness front. Absolutely Brilliant. What about tech? Are there any apps this person has inquired that can help with reducing anxiety in school aged children? I think that's a teacher as well.
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, there are lots of apps that are out there. But unfortunately, there is a real lack of any kind of evaluation for for apps. So there, there have been some evaluations of online treatments. And there is some evidence to suggest that these can be very helpful using a DBT approach within an online program so that people can do these things at home. And some good results have been obtained by some Australian and American groups for online CBT programs. But unfortunately, those aren't generally available here. They've often been developed in university settings and evaluated in university settings and are not kind of being used at scale for example, in our National Health Service. We've actually, over the last couple of years, been working on a project where we've worked with parents and children and a tech company to co-design an online treatment based on our parent-led approach. And uh, we're just coming to the end of that, the development of that, and we'll be starting to evaluate it very soon. So we're really excited about that. It's basically an online program for parents to work through so they can work through the sort of stuff that's in the book but in a quite simplified form with you know other ways of communicating animation video and so on and and it comes to an accompanying game for children which is really there just to help encourage them to have a go at new things and motivate them to get you know try out things which will enable them to learn new things about their fears
0: and when would parents be able to access that it sounds really exciting
1: yeah, that's a very good question. So we're coming to the end of the development. And then we obviously need to evaluate it and make sure that it works. And and so that's our, our next stage. So some parents will be able to access it through that evaluation. But I'm afraid others will have to wait a bit longer. Because, you know, we obviously want to make sure that, that it does work and bring value to families before we, we get it out there. So again, I'm afraid that's a bit of a working and, and And
0: Cathy, do you need parents to participate in that evaluative phrase? Or have you got enough parents for that?
1: Well, so we've got a couple of evaluations that are lined up. One will be with it through um, the anti-research clinic, um, we're hoping. And so that will be offered to families who are coming through that clinic, you know, as routine. So that's just across the Berkshire area. We have other studies that are starting up, which will be more national. But I'm afraid I can't say too much about those just yet. There's a number of of things to just finish finalise.
0: And that brings me to one of my last questions. A parent has asked if anyone can attend the Andy Clinic. That's the the Childhood Anxiety Clinic in in Reading. But I, I think it's Berkshire specific. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's for families all, all across Berkshire. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah, it, it is Berkshire. It's commissioned by the local NHS trusts across east and west Berkshire. So if people live within those areas, they're able to be referred. Lucky Berkshire, lucky Berkshire. Um, last question
0: is from a parent of a child who has autism where she says anxiety and I think this is very common isn't it we, we we've I've met many many parents with autistic children where anxiety is one of the biggest challenges helping the child manage it um, do you have specific advice or resources say for a parent of an autistic um, child in terms of helping them manage it
1: Yeah, it's a really, uh, really interesting question and something that we are thinking about a lot. And certainly, you you know, you're absolutely right that anxiety disorders are very prevalent amongst children with autistic spectrum disorders. And there's been quite a lot of research into this area and and what needs to be done for those families. There have been a number of studies that have used the cognitive behavioral treatment approach with children with anxiety disorders who are on the autistic spectrum disorder. And and generally they get good outcomes. They're often um, kind of lengthier. Uh, because what they do is you know they they um, need to spend a lot more time thinking about how to generalize learning to lots of different situations for for children and young people Um, so we're really uh, we've been thinking a lot recently about how we can adapt our our parent-led approach for parents of children with autistic spectrum disorders because colleagues who have a lot of expertise in that area and parents that we've spoken to have very much said they felt there might be a lot of benefits of the parent-led approach specifically for parents of children with autistic spectrum disorders particularly that those children might find it particularly hard to engage in sort of traditional one-to-one therapies and also um, parents might be in a really good position to help their children generalize the learning in lots of different situations so that's something that we're really keen again to look into going forward but certainly what I'd say to parents at this stage is that you know, that actually do look at, you know, the general resources that are out there that use CBT approaches for the treatment of anxiety disorders in children, they might need to think a little bit about how they adapt them to make them work for their particular child. And obviously, it will depend a little bit on their child's particular needs and their child's particular challenges. But the general approach um, has been tested and and shown to, to work well. So uh, not to be be put off looking at that so the
0: general message is they can still get your helping your child with fears and worries book but they may need to tweak and reflect on what bits and pieces will work for their child and perhaps experiment a little bit
1: yeah and and we'd actually be really interested to hear about people's experience with that and and how they get on because it's some is something we're keen to to look into much more going forward. And, Cathy, obviously, you're very, very busy. If parents do want
0: to contact you in those ways or the, or the school head, for example, how? what's the best way of them doing that?
1: Yeah, so the best way is just to drop me an email, so, uh, which is cathy.creswell at psych.ox.ac.uk. Yeah, and I, I mean, sometimes it might take me a bit longer. That's right. Be, yeah. Like, others. Um, But, uh, you know, at the moment, particularly schools, you know, it's a really good time if they're interested in taking part in research. Uh, For Primary schools, we've got um, some really exciting studies coming up. So we are certainly really keen to hear from them. And from parents, people often do get in touch about how to Get help, and obviously um, the Andy Research Clinic, as we've said, can only work with families across Berkshire at the moment. So I'm always a bit limited in what I can say, and so I t- typically would uh, encourage people to speak to their GP. Also, if they want to look at other ways of accessing help, they can. Um, look at websites like the website for the B.A.B.C.P., which is the British Association of Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapists. And on there, people can find a therapist who is accredited an accredited CBT therapist, and they can particularly look for people who have experience of working with children and young people. So that can be a good way to find someone in people's local area if that's what they're looking for. But
0: also, Kathy, on the Andy Research site, there are
1: amazing, helpful
0: blogs on particular issues for parents. So there's a lot of resource, even if you're not in Berkshire, on that particular site.
1: Yes, I should have said that, <laughs> shouldn't I? Yeah, thanks for flagging that up. And we do have a list of Resor- yeah, we have a list of resources on there. It refers to different books, but also to lots of different websites and other organisations that provide useful information. That's yes. right. So
0: we will definitely in the notes under this podcast, uh, people can download and we will put all of that information and signpost them to that particular um, set of resources. So and also to your brilliant book, which I'm looking at right now in the Overcoming series, and that's available very easily online, isn't it?
1: Yes, that's right. Well, so the new one is the Helping Your Child series.
0: Helping Your Child, that's right. Helping Your Child, sorry, with fears and worries, a self-help guide for parents. And that's published by Little Brown. Okay, so listen, Cathy, thank you so much for taking the time. And hopefully we will be, you know, uh, talking to you again and getting an update on how how all those exciting projects are, are
1: coming along. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Lots of exciting things are just carrying on and getting started. So that would be great. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast
0: is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.